Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Dr. Carol Francis Talk Radio Show. Let's make life happen together with authors, scientists, researchers, both inside the box and outside the box of understanding so that you can live a life full of your success, curiosity, enjoyment, happiness, and richness of life in every respect. Let's go beyond our limits and let's help others go beyond their limits as well. Welcome. Well, one of our limits that we want to go beyond is that if we would subject ourselves to any form of, of, of abuse, and sadly to say that we can become very unclear, blind, in fact, to when we are setting ourselves up in a relationship where we actually are kind of mysteriously taken into the throes of being abused by another individual. So to give us greater clarity as well as an escape route, we have a wonderful author, an author of I Can See No Way, joining us today, and her name is Emma Kate Lamox. Emma, welcome so much to our show, and as individuals come to know your beautiful accent, would you please let us know how we can contact you first, and then we're going to dive right into the dynamic of what's going on with your book and with this topic. Oh, thank you very much for having me here, Dr. Carol. Um, My name's Emma Kate Lomax, and it's Emma Kate Lomax, L-O-M-A-X. And uh, you can find me at isitdomesticviolence.com. And I have a catcher there for anybody who'd like to contact me there. Um, I'd be only too pleased to continue the dialogue after our show. That's beautiful. You're so uh, available to talk to people. And your book is incredibly riveting. It's distressing to read. I have to say that, Emma Kate. It is distressing to read. It's not an easy read, is it, Dr. Carroll? (laughs) But so important, and yet when I say it's not easy to read, it also flows, and it is a, a wonderful link to really be able to immerse people into. Again, the name of the book is, Emma? It's I Can See No Way and you by have Emma a, Kate. A, yes, and, and Emma Kate, you uh, also have a website or a blog, I should say. It's called I Can See Domestic Violence.com. I Can See Domestic Violence.com. Well, there'll be more That's opportunities correct. for listeners to be able to know how to contact you. But Emma, Kate, can you please tell us what are the signs that we are being abused? Because it can be confusing. It is very confusing. And one of the main signs is if you're feeling like you're walking on eggshells around somebody close in your life. If you have that feeling that you're walking on eggshells, feeling afraid of either your partner or your parents or a sibling or your own children, um, it's that feeling of not feeling safe, feeling like you're having to watch what you say, who you are, what you might be. I'd say that's the number one key thing is, uh, you know, I've used before that picture of walking on an eggshell and thinking, is it going to break or is it not going to break? And the the um, emerging feelings from that, I think that's the key the key number one area. You know what's so confusing to me about that and the people that I've worked with is that sometimes we can feel like we're walking on eggshells, but we're really not. We're just kind of, uh, let's say, projecting previous experiences onto the present relationship. So we feel like we have to be incredibly careful and, and diligent to not aggravate. But actually, it's a carryover. How do we differentiate those carryovers uh, and, and oh, notice? That's a- 
That's a really, really good question. And I think it's very difficult on your own to differentiate as to whether something from your past is triggering something in a current relationship or actually whether the current relationship is a repetition of the past. And that's why the issues around family violence and domestic violence are so complex um, because the techniques and the, the issues between being a being a victim and being a perpetrator, that gray area is so fuzzy, um, so, so fuzzy. And often um, a, a, somebody who feels that they are a victim of domestic violence may feel that they become controlling in a subsequent relationship as almost like a defense mechanism for it not to happen again. And so you end up with all these dynamics within all these different relationships that really take some some diagnosis, really. You you also address this in your book. I can see no way the the truth behind the abuser has been abused, and the abuser yeah. can become an abuser. So that's part of that complexity. But how and and you also express compassion for those who are abusers, well, dive into this kind of strange complexity that we're referring to. Oh, it's, it's, it sends shivers up my spine because I think in society we generally want to stick labels on people that they are good or they are bad or they are the perpetrator or they are the victim. And, um, and then if we can't place the blame in one um camp or the other camp, we look to uh, say, well, well, it can't be domestic violence. It must just be six of one and half a dozen of the other. Um, in my experience, and certainly within the book, I explore that both professionally and personally, I've experienced that the violence goes back many generations. And certainly within my own experience, I can relate domestic abuse and controlling behavior right back to World War One, and a great-grandfather who was traumatized within the trenches, who was just a young boy at the time, who then came back to, to England to a, a, a woman who he um, got pregnant and married her because that's what you did in those days. And that the, the daughter of that um, relationship was my grandmother. Mm. And, you know, she lived with a very violent, alcoholic father and a mother who, to all intents and purposes, was a gorgeous, wonderful woman who just tried to fix things all the time. But there was no mm. love. There was no boundaries. There was no communication within that relationship. Um, and that symptoms of their relationship have been passed down, and I can even see them now in my six-year-old daughter. Mm. And trying to tease some of, some of, and diagnose with my professional expertise some of what's happened in my own family, um, and then take that learning into my my own practice has been a fascinating experience. Mm. Um, and and just. 
just you know the, the the way in which you communicate within relationships is very very difficult and not something that we learn outside our families very often the mm-hmm. focus within our schools is on teaching people to read and to write and to do their maths and learn their timetables however if children are, are attending school um, in these families it's all that they know mm-hmm. their own family is all that they know it's, um, you know, people, anger is a part of relationships because, and being able to express anger and frustration is kind of a freedom, although sometimes it can be very destructive. So what is the difference between your partner expressing anger and your partner being abusive? I mean, what's it, and, and vice versa, when you're angry at your partner or your children even, mm-hmm. what's the difference? When does it cross the I line? Think- the, the key issue within an abusive relationship is one of control. It's not about expressing your opinion and waiting for the other person to express theirs and then to negotiate a, a, a win-win um, acceptable solution out of it. In controlling manipulative relationships, the abuser is, is wanting that control. They're wanting to um, to really force the relationship to go in a direction that is uh, what they want. There is little or no appreciation that the other person in that relationship may have a different opinion or something that they're bringing to the party that could be negotiated. And those skills are learned very early on as children. And that's why I have a lot of compassion for um, abusive people within those relationships initially because very often they don't know what they're doing. Sometimes it is a a kind of psychopathic tendency that where somebody is getting a buzz from causing that pain and anguish to somebody else. But the more and more I'm now over 22 years into um, this professionally and a lifetime into it personally, um, People really feel that their belief system and their, what drives them is the truth and that they live a life that, that where there is only one truth. And mm. they're taught that that way uh, is the only way rather than mm. exploring differences and different views and, and really embracing the, the rainbows and the colors of all the different types of people within a family and and those different types of relationships that can provide so much fascination when um, open and honest communication is is at the root of them rather than control. That's interesting because, you know, I think that sometimes we grow into the role of being a parent and we've gotten this misnomer that the children should be seen or not and not heard or that they, they should comply and that the the sign of a good parent is that children are obedient and mm. these all sound very normal and wise and reasonable on some level that the that the children are recognizing uh, out of respect that the parent is the authority and that the parent is the one that has the preferred point of view to follow i mean on some level this all sounds so normal but when can a parent step back and go oh my goodness i'm so invested in this child obeying that I've now become controlling and abusive. Again, when are, they cro- when are we as parents crossing the line and becoming abusive? 
Well, I think it's even when, you know, those very, very early, early years of parenting, um, if you have injured or suffered abuse as as a child and then become a parent, I remember when my own son was born, I was only 21 years old. And um, I really felt I could not parent a daughter at that age because of I just felt that the the way that mother-daughter relationships have been modeled to me, that I was incompetent, incapable of parenting a, a daughter. And when my son was born, very quickly I had some awareness um, that I had I was struggling and could be very uh, controlling because that's the way that I felt I had been taught and I could take a victim stance very easily. But I was also in, in a job as a probation officer and uh, was, was just finishing my training straight out of university when he was born. And that, that job had an air of authority about it, but it was almost like I was addicted to dealing with violence and dealing with abuse and that addiction took me into a a profession a helping profession where I got my own healing and therapy from my own experiences as a child and as a teenager through my work um I'm not sure that answered your question exactly because that that it's a continuous learning um and I'm not sure that as a parent when you're when you are being abusive, you can see those signs. It takes other people to to point them out to you. But the the one thing is if your children feel that they cannot come and talk to you openly about the things that are going on in their lives mm-hmm. and re, you know, learn about making mistakes and mistakes being okay. Um daughter is quite uh quite cheeky and people will refer to her as being a bit of a chip off the old block and she's only six (laughs) years old as I'm 44. So there's kind of a generation between my raising a son and raising a daughter. And uh, just, you know, she she was saying to me as I was kind of embarrassing her this weekend with friends, mommy, mommy, zip it, zip it, zip it. And I could see that my friends actually thought that she was overstepping that boundary in mm-hmm. company and they one of my closest friends said to her, hey Lucy Kate you know you don't speak to your mother like that and when we came home I was explaining to her that people on the outside couldn't see that we had a relationship where that kind of sense of humor was okay between the two of us that she's able to signal to me, Mommy, you're embarrassing me. Mommy, you're you're overstepping the mark or I'm not feeling comfortable with what you're doing by using a sense of humor that's very similar to my own. Mm. But that to the outside world that's that seemed or could could be interpreted as a six year old overstepping the mark. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, she, from just having that conversation, she said, you know, I have to treat you a little bit more like I treat my teacher when there's other people looking, or they have to know me a little bit better, don't they, to know that I'm only kidding and I'm not being uh-huh. being rude to you. Hmm. And I'm not, you know, not saying to her, you know, you must not do that to me in front of other people, would have been me trying to control her behavior. 
and and lots of parents will use that kind of of uh, control to to stifle their their, their child's growth. Hmm. It sounds like such an open dialogue between you and your daughter in terms of trying to just explore and understand the dynamics of what have gone on as opposed to sit there and decrease and sort of right or wrong or some sort of position that she must fulfill and vice versa. Beautifully said. I I like to think so. But of course, in my parenting of her, I will make mistakes and and have done have made several and continue to make several. But I do think that open dialogue between parents and children and, and other family members is one of the key issues around around working through um, control within relationships. Okay, so let's let's follow a little bit of a format for a moment. Now, on your wonderful site, is it domesticviolence.com? Emma Kate Lomax has offered to each of you an opportunity to receive a free copy of her book. Uh, my goodness, do not hesitate to take advantage of it. Thank you so much, Emma Kate, for offering that. Um, oh, you're very welcome. That is, do you want to tell more for a moment to our listeners about your book and about your offer? Well, my my book is a kind of mixture between a, a memoir and tells my own personal story through it starts with me as a 16-year-old, and um, I was I was raped by a stranger in a hotel as a 16-year-old, and shows how from that incident and from um, my own experience how I processed some of the things that had happened to me as a child, but also how I took decisions moving forward. So from a very traumatic and violent um, assault at 16, at the age of 18, I took the decision to become a social worker. Mm-hmm. And I, the, the two things are, are, you know, I went to university on a four-year degree course and became a very young 22-year-old uh, social worker. Mm-hmm. Um, and I met my uh, first husband, who is my son's father, um, whilst I was doing uh, that degree in social work. And very quickly, my own um, abuse became completely entangled in my professional life um, mm-hmm. because I go on to tell how I was in an abusive relationship with my son's father um, and qualifying as a probation officer and working with offenders uh, sex offenders and domestic... I, well, I didn't specialize too much in domestic violence at the time. I took the route of specializing in working with sex offenders um, for much of my early career. And there are some similarities, but also many differences. And the book explores how my own personal life, uh, and uh, I went on to have other relationships after I finished the first relationship, and it explores some of the issues you raised before about how you wonder whether it's you who's been abusive or whether indeed you have followed a, another, a similar pattern of uh, marrying another abuser. And it kind of um, tries to break that down whilst looking at the people that I've worked with. And uh, certainly over the last five to six years where I've 
really felt like I've got got, got it sorted as far as uh, domestic violence is concerned and violence within families. How I've then gone on to help many uh, families um, moving forward and how the similarities between my professional life and my, my personal life have overlapped and arrived at a model which I work with my clients and their families with now. You know, you, you just that very last uh, paragraph, how I helped families overcome the abuse, is simultaneously frightening and also so satisfying to hear. The reason it's frightening to me is um, many people stay in abusive relationships because they have a perpetual belief that they yeah. can avoid the abuse the next time. And so it's that perpetual hope, that yeah. belief, the effort, the trying, the forgiving, the giving another chance. That's a perpetual process seems on one hand to be the right way to approach these type of complications, and on the other hand is actually what puts individuals deeper and deeper enmeshed into the treadmill of being in an abusive situation and then having children in that abusive situation and so forth and so on. So when you say helping families, what type of help can a person in an abusive relationship authentically reach out for and yet not get themselves enmeshed in this chronic ongoing cycle of uh, horrible abuse and then forgiveness and then the building of the tension and then abuse again begins again. Tell us this formula, Emma Kate. Well, the first and most important bit of that formula is acknowledging um, that there is an issue. And I spent maybe off and on 20 years um, thinking that I'd got it sorted or that the issue was not there because I put up this numbness of just, you know, getting on with life and um, and that numbness and that wall that I built around myself meant that I never really acknowledged my own pain. You know, that 16-year-old took the decision to go into a profession of helping other people really so quickly after her own um, trauma. And even now I'm talking about her as though she's not me. (laughs) She's in the third person. So even now you can, decisions about distancing yourself from the very essence of who you are. And our mind will do things that will protect us from actually feeling that pain. Um, you know, if I ch- change my language now to talk about her, that 16-year-old as me, then I'm sure that we will, I will start to cry. So, I'll, you know, acknowledging your own pain and what you have gone through is a very, very, it's, it's, it feels on the surface of it that it's the easiest thing to do. But when when we're subjected to trauma, and when I was subjected to trauma, very quickly that that um, that wall went up, that numbness went up, and I felt like I was protecting myself by the the mechanisms that I used. But really, I was just perpetuating the pain and the abuse. Mm-hmm. And moving on from kind of feeling your own pain is looking at understanding that pain and the impact that it has on other people around you and on yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, And given that's where the dynamic becomes so complex is that often the people around you are 
perpetuating abuse or there are family members that try really hard to help but don't know what to say and don't know what to do or the abuser may be presenting to family members as though there's absolutely nothing wrong at all and you're the one that's going crazy and working through all the complexities of those issues um, is very, very complex. And I think we're only just now within the field of relationships and, and family dynamics beginning to beginning to recognize that we cannot uh, take individuals out of the uh, holistic scenario and work with them and then expect them to be able to change the dynamics of all those relationships that actually working holistically with a family and giving uh, support to extended family within that setting um, is is a way of of stopping the cycle from continuing and continuing I, I and so, that, oh, go ahead go ahead I was just going to say so many times if I had had the confidence in myself to trust my own instincts um, and follow my instincts as opposed to being swayed by different opinions and different views, all of whom were well-intentioned. There isn't one person in my extended family that's not well-intentioned by the advice that they give. Um, but the complexities of, of the issue when you really feel like you're losing yourself and losing who you are um, within relationships is is really important. And yet trusting your instincts is the one of the first things that goes. I think that uh, if I can bring up your father uh, with all yeah. respect and at the same time to really question that he was very confused about you and very confused oh, about yeah. Silly Billy and very confused about very long into the future about how yeah. to engage Phil in his life and also how to respect you. Do yeah. you want and to discuss that? Yeah, um, we may get tears here because he's still very confused. He's still, mm. he's still, you know, he's read, I think, about three quarters of my book and gone from, I'm so proud of you, if you could do this, you can do absolutely anything, in one conversation with me recently, to very quickly, you know, this can't have happened, you're still not telling the truth, you know, I should have been able to protect you, if only you hadn't have gone to do that job as a waitress, none of this would have happened, and he's still very angry. Um, because he's been unable, you know, uh, throughout my social work career, I've often, you know, often said that my one big desire would be for to have that relationship with my parents where they could hear what I'm saying, but their belief systems from their own experiences as children and their own relationships with their own parents are so entrenched now as they approach you know my mother's 60 in her late 60s my father in his early 70s it's almost like I just wish you know we had a conversation recently which ended up a little bit kind of traumatic where one of them said well the only thing that you've ever done for me is suggest that I get therapy and then the door comes down and that's it about their pain 
they're probably still not being able to acknowledge their pain around what happened to them, but also what happened to their daughter and the guilt that goes along with feeling that you weren't able to protect your own children mm-hmm. um, in difficult situations. So that, you, you, very, you very astutely said that you felt like the abuse in your family links all the way back to World War II, One, And, yeah. and it, it, these men and now women that are sent to these violent circumstances to do and to be subjected to violence, uh, yeah. they clearly have to train themselves to function with that type of violence, both as they see themselves manifesting and attacking and being the aggressor, and also as they see themselves being the victim. So they have to train themselves, in a sense, to cope with a type of emotional and physical and uh, circumstantial violence, abuse. And then they come back to the domestic situation, and I would love to kind of explore for a moment that when a man comes back to the domestic situation and a woman is not versed in this this war attitude, this surviving mm-hmm. war attitude, the woman is still in her vulnerability, she's in her fragility, she's in her tenderness, she's in her, uh, she, she can be broken more easily, her body's not as strong, it's all these differentials on that level of physical strength. And I often find men are like, wanting to toughen their women up. They want their women to have a thicker skin. They want to be able to be just who they are, to shout it out and then recover from it. And they want their woman to come along on that same ride so that there can be kind of like this burst of yuck and then move toward forgiveness and gentleness, like this kind of cycle. You know, it sounds kind of bipolar, but that's probably the way the soldier deals with their own internal battle with having been violent, and suffered violence and having come to this peaceful domestic situation. And so are we really talking about society learning not to tolerate violence and yet having to be engaged in violence when it comes to political boundaries of war and religious differentiation and so forth and so on that just causes people to be very antagonistic in our, on our planet? Uh, and does that also create the imbalance between male and female uh, when the man really wants the woman to rise up and then tries to do it by toughening up by way of things that are violent, that are abusive, to toughen up their woman the way they had to be toughened up in the military. Well, I know that's a, a big earful, but uh, perhaps relevant. There's there's so much there. I mean, my personal view is that there is very, very little difference between the politics that I see of the wars in our between countries and the wars between religious factions and the issues that I see regarding white privilege and and racism that I that I witness around me and uh, violence within families. I think the solutions to our world problems are are very much rooted within our families, um, and for us to be able to bring an end to a violence within our world, that the, that the solutions lay within violence within our families, because then we would be able and have the skills to be able to challenge authority and look for collaborative decision-making when we're, when we're in our careers, whatever those careers may be. Um, 
but we have a, a, a military when we have a military approach to not questioning and to doing as you are instructed and following orders, then that perpetuates. Um, I'm an advocate and, and a believer that um, men and women are equally capable of um, perpetrating abuse within relationships. And what I, what I see when I work with uh, families where the, the woman is is labeled in adverted commas as being the perpetrator is that it does when you go back from the generations come from a root that maybe maybe lies initially in only the men that went to war but that as women um, who attempt to control and attempt to make the people within their relationships feel very small and as though their contribution to that family is worthless and not uh, that they're not capable of, of working within a family model. It's either their way or the highway. Um, I, I, I'm not, I don't really purport, I don't really, I, I would say I'm a feminist, but I don't really purport to this feminist view that it's, only the men and it's men that can abuse i think certainly within this last generation and the last 20 30 years whatever's gone before us in terms of of the wars and the violence that i think has had massive impacts on uh on family life across the whole of the the world um it, it that women now are nearly as much able to be abusive within relationships as men. Mm -hmm. They may not be able to exert the same kind of physical violence by, with use of, but what I'm noticing more and more is that the emotional abuse and the, 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 the thing of exerting one act of physical violence to then be able to control completely within that relationship or a fear that somebody will get hurt, that children will be hurt or that um, the, when when law enforcement is involved, that people will. There's so many so many complexities and so many grey areas where I think men who are the victims of emotional abuse and domestic violence feel that it doesn't matter what they do or what they say, they won't be believed, and that mm -hmm. brings an additional complexity to that situation. Mm -hmm. And equally, you know, um, men coming back from, from war and recent wars and some of the soldiers that I've worked with recently, have, you know, they have gone in both directions. They have gone both to be um, a perpetrator of, of violence within their families or emotional abuse. They've also been very susceptible to going into relationships where they are controlled uh, and where they feel controlled because that's what they've known within that military setting. Mm -hmm. And it feels safe to be with an emotionally abusive partner or wife. And then there's the third element of, of that, where people see that and have a real interest in the psychology and the complexities of that. And there are, there are many people that choose careers like my own or are really fighting. And fighting is such an unfortunate word to use in the but they're trying to, trying to love their way out of the situation by saying, not in my family. I need to find a way 
for things to be different within my own family. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to keep practicing this and keep um, working through the issues until I get mm-hmm. find some kind of sense or semblance of order within it. Mm-hmm. I, you know, the, the idea that in the process of putting boundaries and definitions, it's all well and good to say at no point in time will we engage in physical brawl or pushing mm-hmm. or hitting or anything of that sort, that that's just off limits in this relationship, including with children. Uh, yeah. it, so that would be one level. But it's really interesting what you're saying about the verbal and emotional because a lot of them, a lot of men will say, she just kept yelling at me. She just kept provoking me. She just kept doing da-da-da-da-da. And mm-hmm. then I pushed her. And they're not right to have resorted to the physicality. But what's interesting is that the brain is as barraged by words of intimidation and put down and criticism or even just the pounding sound of ranting and ragging and raving that aggravates almost a physical parallel of being hit inside of our brain and our biochemistry so that everybody needs to take responsibility when they're engaging in condescending, attacking words and sounds, as well as actions, that we are vulnerable to being provoked, and we are also capable of provoking, makes it very complex. What no, you it makes it. No, it just makes it so complex because I'm thinking of times where, where I have joined that party of being abusive emotionally and by shouting or by by saying things and going into a rant because I feel like I cannot get my voice heard in any other way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. Um, often when I've seen what I perceive as being something abusive um, within my own uh, family, and that's where it becomes really kind of, you know, really complex mm-hmm. because what tends to happen is that people will mirror each other's behavior mm-hmm. and then they will seek to blame each other that somebody has got to be the, the perpetrator, somebody has got to be wrong and the other person has got to be right. And families that spiral into... um dishing insults and giving, um, putting people down and there having to be a hierarchy of who's kind of in charge in kind of animalistic terms of who's the matriarch, who has the right to, to, to speak in this situation, whose opinion is more valid than somebody else's, um, tends to then spiral into a situation where people do control you know, either access to money within families or um, controlling who people within the family can speak to or be involved with. Um, and, and, you know, I've had people within my own family who I don't have any contact with anymore, but they will still check up on where you're up to, either professionally, through Facebook or social media. It's almost like people need are addicted to those relationships um, that have been um, created so much pain. Um, and 
some people will commit to trying to to solve that pain um, and other people will just completely say I'm sorry this this we can't go on with this relationship any longer and distance themselves from it in, in its entirety mm-hmm. I think you were also pointing to uh, an idea that is falsely present that once you're in a intimate relationship you have the right to say your mind and demonstrate your raw feelings at any given time. Like that's kind of like a contract of an intimate relationship and that's just an irresponsible approach to recognizing that your partner is a limited human being, vulnerable as are you. And that to yeah. overwhelm or flood or or say what's ever on your mind, to think that that's ever okay is not too different than thinking that it's okay to hit someone if you feel like it. If there's a, a parallel yeah. we we need to come to terms with. What are your reactions? Yeah, and I think it's it's really difficult within within those intimate partnerships to to for people who've who've had significant trauma that often they will choose to either offload absolutely everything, which is equally as as dangerous and as as uncomfortable for the pe- other people within those relationships as bottling up completely. And we have very little help or assistance available and very few people who are highly skilled in this area to be able to support people through that process. Hmm. You know, I know I explain in my own book how for many years, three or four years after the rape, I told absolutely not another living soul what had happened to me. Hmm. And then I told my first husband and everything came out and that person was charming and and loving and completely uh, and, and now i see completely full of his own um his own pain but he was he was saying that he could provide solutions for me he could be my cure and what we know and what we realize is that nobody is going to find the cure to anybody's trauma or issues inside mm. anybody else. Mm. Uh, that the, the solutions are only within ourselves. And then if three or four people within a family commit to making that decision together to to work with their own trauma and then communicate openly about that with support, then we have space and we have real hope for movement forward. Hmm. And if oh, only so- one person, sorry. And if only if, one person. If, if only one person within that relationship takes that decision, then they can do their, their own healing and it will impact on their future relationships with other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and they will be able to form new relationships and new friendships based on this kind of new authentic way of being and have Mm -hmm. their own kind of internal checklist for testing out whether as you were saying before whether somebody is is being abusive or be or just speaking their mind and uh testing that out and building trust over a, a a long period of time not making snap decisions about people as to whether they belong on a pedestal or whether they belong buried in the ground and I think people who've experienced trauma to that extent make those decisions about other people very very quickly and without Mm -hmm. the right evidence to base those decisions upon Mm -hmm. people are either bad 
or good. And then often you can be wrong with that judgment. Oh, absolutely. We're talking to Imitate Lomax, L-O-M-A-X, and you can read more about her book and actually gain access to it at isitdomesticviolence.com and also can I can see no com. I believe is your that's the name of your book, but is that also the name of your I, blog? I can oh, see I domestic violence is the name of the blog, yeah. Oh there we go. I got completely constructed. <laughs> <No>, um, <laughs> okay. I so there we go. I can see no way is the name of your book. Wonderful book. And I think that artificially we're going to try to develop really concrete ways people can see if they're in abusive situations. And I say artificially because it is hard to know whether you need to stay and help and heal or whether you're part of the formula of spiraling down into abusive context. But either way, at one point or another, you have to intervene in an abusive situation if you're there. And you have to maybe intervene at the level of saying, am I being abused or am I being abusive? But either way, this has got to come to an It's harming too many people. It's your compassion and your clarity and your self-honesty that is probably one step toward moving you closer to ending the cycle. So as a consequence, Kate Lomax, you have this wonderful list of 10 signs you are in an abusive relationship on your site, isitdomesticviolence.com. And I wonder if we can go through those 10 rather quickly um, in, in, in this way. I'd like to say, for example, your first one is, do you feel afraid of your partner much of the time and... Conversely, are you creating a situation where your partner is afraid of you much of the time? So that we can kind of go both directions here and kind of evaluate that. Is that all right that we do that with this fine list of yours? Oh, that would be perfect because I think it helps people who may want to reach out, who are confused and think, you know, that they're, they're going crazy. Is it me or is it them or is it what is it? these 10 steps really help people to to reach out for help and know that there is a compassionate ear waiting for them. Hmm. You know, in your book you talk about there's no shame in admitting you're being abused. And I'm wondering if you can free yourself saying also, I need to get away from my shame about the possibility that I'm contributing to the abuse and get into clarity. Not so that I'm beat up or I hate myself because I might have contributed to an argument. But so that uh-huh. I can get away from ever doing this argument again. Because I think that part of the domestic situation is, oh, look, at I contributed to this. I said too much. I did something that was inconsiderate. I was mean. Therefore, I need to be punished by this other person. And therefore, I'll, sur- I'll survive this relationship because I'll take my punishment. And that will be a way of me being contrite and humbled. And that's not a solution. You want to address that? Def- yeah, it's most definitely not a solution. I think that that pattern goes on to where people feel that they, you know, the next one is about do you feel emotionally numb or helpless as though there's absolutely nothing that you can do that will change the situation. And and that runs really deep because both as 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 in, when you're embroiled in, in a relationship that feels very toxic, you're continually blaming yourself for if you did something different, would it change things? Mm-hmm. And I think back to patterns where 
I feel that I may have been abusive in my relationships with people in my family. And I, I, I experienced that thought process as well. So both as victim and as somebody who is perhaps perpetrating abuse, I think you've, the, the, the thought process is very, very similar mm-hmm. around it doesn't matter what I do, I don't seem to be able to change this. Mm-hmm. I feel completely helpless. I feel as mm-hmm. though I'm losing my mind. Mm-hmm. And Beautiful I think parallel. it's... Mm-hmm. Sorry? Beautiful parallel you I, just drew. Yeah, I I think that's what makes relationships within the family so complex is that, you know, we can't, the the, the spiral of of the tug of war of one person being on one end of the tug of war and one person being on the other and somebody's got to win and often these kids are in the middle of it all is, is the way in which until recently we've looked at domestic violence that there has to be a perpetrator and there has to be a victim and the kids then obviously belong with the victim and not the perpetrator um Mm -hmm. it's not clear cut like that because all Mm -hmm. of the abusers that i've worked with have felt very very similar emotions to the victims and when people have a clear idea that in some some aspects their behavior is is abusive and in others they are on the receiving end of of abuse then we start to move somewhere um Mm -hmm. because i think you know the the next one on the list is around kind of does your partner ignore or put down your opinions or accomplishments if i think back to my relationship sorry for a moment and vice versa do you put down yes your uh, your yeah. partner's opinions and accomplishments, or do you ignore your partner? And does, you know, so both sides. You know, we're walking both sides. Yes, go oh, ahead. What, what you were? Mm-hmm. I was going to say exactly that. After uh, my after Phil had hit me, and um, uh, it was a, a a long assault, and there were lots of aspects of that relationship that were really complex and difficult. I know I used to put him down all of the time. It was almost like my my revenge. It was like, you've hit me, and therefore I, I, I don't need to respect you anymore on when I'm trying to respect you. So it spirals. And, you know, when, when I wanted to move careers um, and go into a different job, and uh, Phil said to me, you know, if you take that job, that's it, we're over. And... I would respond with, well, I'm taking that job and that's all there is to it, lying under it. You know, that's where you can see, as we touched on earlier, my father's view of, you know, bang these two people's heads together. They're both as bad as each other. Mm. And 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 teasing teasing that apart within a relationship and teasing that apart with my clients can be really, really difficult mm-hmm. and can take people time to to think hang on a minute i came to emma as a emma kate as a fixer and an advocate and i'm paying her and she must she must support me 100 percent because i'm the person that's paying for this and i'm the victim but i've been absolutely amazed that when we start to put the authenticity model into practice 
how willing and how open and how relieved my clients feel to explore this with somebody who gets it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, often people will say that 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 people working in the domestic violence field need to have experienced domestic violence to to get it. I'm not. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't go that that far. But I do know that because of my professional experience and because of my personal experience, it does give a, a unique take. Um, and uh, very quickly, my clients, even before I wrote the book, knew that I had had an abusive past because of the way in which I, I understood and got where they were coming from very quickly. I, I, I think it's a, it's a, it's a life it's life tools uh, that are essential for working with abusive situations uh, that we can bring to our clients. You know, I do want to just say at this moment that there are clearly those situations where one person is clearly the abuser and the yeah. other individual is clearly the overwhelming receiver of the abuse and that those situations are equally quite difficult for an abused individual to escape and that we're really kind of not talking about those very clear situations uh, we're talking about that middle road situation and complicated relationships where there's a lot of discord, disharmony. Um, but for a moment, the difference in the situations where one is clearly pathologically the abuser is controlling yeah. the other person, dominating, yeah. isolating, uh, putting down chronically, keeping them subservient, uh, keeping them in a state of fear and weakness so that they can't rise up against or even escape. Those are very, very serious circumstances, and they do happen. And they're very confusing because they can look normal on the outside as they're socially appropriate. They can be in any economic arrangement, um, yeah. but but very, very uh, uh, disconcerting. Do you want to address that for a moment before we go on with this discussion? Yeah. Between, they they uh, are the majority of my clients where there are a, there is a clear... Um, a victim-perpetrator uh, role from the outset. Um, and it's only when we explore that that we start to get into some of those dynamics that we've discussed earlier, Dr. Carroll. But most most um, cases present themselves very much as a clear, somebody has, has um, assaulted somebody else, either physically or sexually or or emotionally uh, is holding that person hostage and subservient and and it is it is a very dangerous situation to be in um people will know if they have a look at my blog that that I can talk or people will ask me to talk about their their particular circumstances or their particular case and then something will raise up where they're, they're not safe anymore um, that there's a danger within that um, family that is very real and very, um, you know, very imminent. Mm-hmm. And, and in my work with those families, it's really difficult to talk about who I am and what I am and to 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 market what I do. Because mm-hmm. when I'm working intensely with those families, um, that, that there has to be a balance between providing a degree of protection and safety for the people that I'm working directly with mm-hmm. um balanced with how I you know how I market what I do and 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 try to help other families mm-hmm. um 
very recently um, somebody who was supporting me with with my book and my business said, but, you know, you have to talk about this. You have to, to continue to talk openly about things because if somebody who you're working with is hurt or harmed by their partner, it's not you who pulled the trigger, either metaphorically or, you know, in reality pulls the trigger. Mm. But in doing this work, when you become very close to the people in which you're working with, it's not such a clear demarcation. You know, mm-hmm. I work with, with people at times in their lives where their their safety or their safety of their children can be exceptionally precarious. Yeah. And um, for, for my own, um, I've always been that I will take less clients and promote the safety of the ones that I'm working directly with at that time rather than, um, you know, be promoting or speaking openly about who I am and what it is I do. Hmm. That's interesting. Uh, I know that one time I had a, uh, I do, I still have a, a YouTube about domestic violence, and uh, a, a woman reached out and said, oh, this has been so helpful, thank you very much. And then within a matter of moments, I got another message, how dare you tell my wife that I'm an abuser yes. and I'm going to come get you, and you better stop having... This is all the exchange over my YouTube. I didn't even actually know it was happening until weeks later when I finally looked at... Because I don't have time to look at comments. Yeah. The whole dynamic is going on between these people because this is being exposed. And it's a scary world. It is a very scary world. I actually would not advise an abused individual to confront the abuser. Um... I would advise the abused individual, once they're clear they're being abused, to find a way to extricate themselves out of it safely along with their children and then in that safe distance confront the abuser because it's too scary when that person feels accosted that they're going to exert even more control, even more urge to oppress, even more urge to intimidate and uh, that that gets to be a very scary moment. Confronting an abuse, abusing individual when they're not willing to see it themselves is is almost an impossible circumstance. You're not likely to succeed. That's my that's my uh, dogma for the moment. But what do you think of that? Maybe I'm off. Well, I'm in total agreement with you, and it's it's sending shivers up my spine because very recently I worked with somebody who had been assaulted only hours before they rang okay. uh, for their session with me and conducted their session with me with their partner upstairs in the house and their partner knowing that they were having a session with me. And that was one of the most difficult and challenging um, sessions because that person really wanted to stay in that relationship they loved their husband. They knew what was happening to them. They loved their children, and they wanted change. But from what I could see at that particular moment in time is that there was only one person who wanted to come to the party for change. Hmm. And therefore, that was a really dangerous situation for that person to be in. And you're right. I think the advice should be or could be, we need to get you somewhere safe. But very often, um, both men and women in these situations will take a long time 
to get to a place where they are ready to do that. Mm-hmm. And if you give direct advice for somebody to leave and they don't leave or they leave and go back, then you can really harm that relationship that you will always be there for them. Mm. So there are a number of people that I have worked with who have left nine times and gone back to dangerous situations. Mm-hmm. And the key about how I work and what I work is that every choice that they take has got to be theirs, and I will support them whatever the decision they take. Mm because I know how difficult that leaving is and that getting safe is and that actually that that taking that action to get yourself safe is when you're at your most dangerous. Mm-hmm. And, and it's so yes. counterintuitive that if you push somebody to take that action before you're ready, you're almost pushing them into a very dangerous situation before perhaps maybe they have the skills to be able to to then stay safe and keep themselves safe. Mm-hmm. Wow. It's, it's, uh, we are at the end of our, our hour here, and Carla, this is a complex topic. You have a wonderful system called authenticity, and we're not talking about necessarily being authentic with the Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde individual you're living with, or Mrs. Jekyll, Mrs. Hyde. Uh, mm-hmm. but, uh, but actually... Uh, a much more delicate program that once you go through the book, I can see no way and have an interaction with Emma Kate Lomax. You'll be able to understand what authenticity means and how it can rescue you, help you. um, And at the same time, do it in a way that doesn't cause you more jeopardy. Well, Emma Kate Lomax with the wonderful uh, website, it it is at domesticviolence.com. Give us some parting words that you wish you could just talk more, but give us our, your parting words that you think will help catapult people into their next healthiest decision. It's all about having compassion for yourself and and loving and finding the answers with inside yourself. Um, I think far too often we turn to other people within our lives for the answers and for measuring ourselves up and our own worthiness about what other people think about us but just being thankful that you're here and being grateful for your future and and because your future is where you're going to spend the rest of your life and you are all you have and the answers lie within you whether you're abusive or being abused um the answers lie within you and uh with it within what i offer we work through that authenticity program to really bring out change from within. Hmm. Beautiful. Thank you so much. And listeners, would you please take really good care of yourself following this great advice to be compassionate and savvy, careful, and not stuck as much as possible. And we'll talk to you more. Take good care, everyone. Thank you, Emma, Kate, Lomax. Cheers. Thank you.
So, Emma Kate, this ends our session, and I'm not going to be able to call you back like I usually do since you're in the UK. And I want to thank you so much for joining us because we're right beyond being recorded. But can you hear me? I can, yes. Thank you okay. so much, Carol. It was a, a poignant conversation that we had going there with many oh, different dynamics covered. I'm glad you felt that way. I certainly did myself. And what we'll do is we will uh, start the uh, promotional process and keep it going within the next two weeks uh, on one level. And then on another level, we have a promotional project that goes on for about 30 days. So we'll see how we can help promote you during that time. Okay? Thank you very much, Carol. I really appreciate it. Okay. Be well. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.